0: Okay, last week actually in Nehemiah, so before we jump in, I just want to say a couple of quick things. Um, Number one, there's always some individuals, there are even some groups in our church that do Bible reading together every day, every day, every year, I mean they do read, and they discuss, and I have put together the Bible reading for next year, for 2024. A number of people who are doing this have asked me, can we, can we get Jesus back? They'd like to get back in the New Testament, because we have spent two years in the old, and this year's been a lot of time in the prophets, and they're not always easy to do. So we are back in the New Testament this year in a very unique way. Um, y- if you want to grab one of these, they're on the back on the pub table on the way out um, Even if this is not your habit, this is a great way to get into a daily Bible reading habit, so I think, I hope you will appreciate the way that we're doing the reading this year. Um, Baptism, trying to get this on everybody's mind early, we're going to do it the last Sunday of February, the 25th, so if that's something you're thinking about, please let Lisa or I or the office or Jordan or somebody know. Um, I've had conversations with a couple of adults in the last couple weeks just about this topic, so... um, Doing the baptism, one other thing I have as we 've been going through nehemiah i 've had a number of people just make the little comment of like uh, like you get things out of Nehemiah that I would never find there, and I just want to simply say that actually there's that 's not true. Um, if you were to sit down and see watch what I do whenever I take a chapter of text what I do with it it 's a pretty simple Bible study method and what I come up with comes out of the text, and if you do certain things, kind of the big idea becomes pretty clear, and the major the idea's under that, and so every year we do a little course in the summer, usually, we may do one in the spring, called Bible Study 101, so if you're interested in, in what that method is that I use, then I just want to let you know we will do that again, um, and this year, because we always practice it this year, we might even practice it with a chapter of Nehemiah, and then one finally thing, one finally, one final thing, Every January, um, we used to do this a long time ago, and we kind of stopped, and since I came back, we've reinstituted this. We're trying to do something practical Practical, the third weekend of every January. Two years ago, we did a course on parenting. This last January, we did a marriage course. It was like a Friday night, Sunday morning thing, and both of them were really excellent, and when we were talking about this as a staff and figuring out what we want our Our rotation to be on that, this is the advantage of having diversity on your staff. Laura, who leads our children's ministry, said, those things are great, but if somebody is single like me and in a position that I'm likely never to get married, she says, I'm never benefiting from that kind of thing. And so based upon her saying that, we decided this year we're going to do the Emotionally Healthy. Um, It's a material that is really good. I've learned a lot from it. This applies to anybody in any relationship and how to relate to friends, how to relate to coworkers. It It has a lot of good stuff that relates to marriage, to parenting. I mean, the skills translate across the board. So I just want to get this um, in your mind because it's really excellent stuff. So we're going to be doing that the third week of February. So, all right. Now, Book of Nehemiah. Again, last week that we're in the Book of Nehemiah. And one thing I want to say briefly about this is living a restored, which has been kind of the, the purpose we've been doing this. Um, I had a conversation with somebody who's an educator a few weeks ago, and they said to me, it's really hard for me to be a restorer where I'm at. And as we talked, it's, it's really easy for us when we think of this to think in only one of those four categories, and it's the spiritual. It's like leading people to Jesus, and they're in an environment where they cannot talk about God in their place. And so what I reminded them is it's not just that, that there's four, when God, create, when God created the universe, there was shalom in four relationships, not just my relationship with God, my relationship with others, my relationship with myself, my relationship with creation, so this, the spiritual, social, emotional, physical. And I said, you as a restorer, you do the restoring where it's needed where you are. And I know enough educators, I'm married to an educator that I know education is really hard now, there are a lot of broken families, a lot of broken children who desperately need to have somebody who can embody them simply, the love of God, right, unconditionally. And I said, you live into that, and you be restored in that way. So I just want to take that pressure off that you always have to be, it's, it's not always spiritual restoration that I'm thinking, okay? I want people to know Jesus, but I restore in the ways that I sense that people around me need it. So just wanted to do that really quick. Okay, so for today... Uh, I'm curious, how many of you, as we've walked through Nehemiah, have noticed, this was not my tact with him, it could have been, there are so many leadership principles in his book. As you're going through it, just as a leader, I'm like, wow, that's really good, that's really good. My tact has been more with the idea of restoration, but there are so many principles that I have learned from this, even as I've gone through it. And this morning, I want to wrap up our time in Nehemiah by speaking to a very practical issue that relates to that topic of leadership. And when I think of leadership, the word I think of is influence. Not all of us is called to be or wired or gifted to be a primary leader of something. That's what we tend to think. But all of us can have an influence, right? That's why at the beginning of the semester, we identified what are my key places, who are the key people, the places God has put me, the people he's put in my life where I can have influence on them and live as a restorer, a shalom bringer. So we all have influence for the sake of the kingdom. And so that's when I think of leadership, that's what I think of. And there are four primary ways that I'm called to lead. It's what I call a leadership constellation. And here it is. First, the main way I think we think about leadership is leading down. When we think of somebody running an organization, that kind of thing. Um, It is a difficult form of leadership. The weight and responsibility when you're on the top of something is pretty heavy. But that's what we usually think of when we think about leadership. The second way would be leading sideways. And this is where I'm leveraging my influence on people around me, my peers, my friends, my coworkers, colleagues, um, people like that. And this one is so significant. I think this is the easiest for me of the four ways to lead is leading sideways. Um, because of the relationships, it's easier, I think, to speak truth into those, those relationships. So that's the second one. The third form of leadership is self-leadership, and this is the one I think is the hardest. And the reason I think it's hardest is because of what Paul says in Romans 7. See if this doesn't resonate with you. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this keep, I keep on doing. I mean, who doesn't feel that deep in your gut? Who doesn't feel that deep in your gut? So what that tells me is, is the hardest form of leadership is self-leadership, and that's why the truth is if I want to lead myself well, I have to lead, be led by the Holy Spirit and walking with Him because He will generate in me the things I need to do self-leadership well, including that last one, which is self-control. But the fourth and final form of leadership in your leadership constellation is leading up, and it's the one we hear the least about, at least the thing I've heard the least about, but I think it's profoundly important, and it's profoundly difficult leading up. Um, So here's the question this morning. How do you lead well from the second chair? How do you lead well from the second chair, specifically trying to leverage positive influence on the primary leader above you for their good, for the good of all, and for the glory of God? That's my calling as a second chair. Now, why are we talking about this? Because back in May when I was going through Nehemiah, especially when I was in chapters 1 and 2, it, I realized I've got a, there's a lot to learn from Nehemiah about leading from the second chair, and I thought I need to address this. And so we're going to be primarily in chapter 2. If you will turn in your booklet, it's page 74 if you have that. It's the last chunk of Scripture. 2-1 is at the top, and I'm going to have Renee Blackburn come up, and she is going to read from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Would you stand with me for the reading of the Word? And you can follow along in the booklet or on your phone, reading from the NIV.
1: Nehemiah 2 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, what does your face look so sad when you are not ill? Then this This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors were buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, May I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me a safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalai and the Hororite and, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites.
0: Amen. Thank you, Renee. Yes. This is the word of the Lord. Can we say amen? You may be seated. Now, again, I live in the already, not yet, so when I was putting this together, I knew I was going to do this topic, but sadly, I only put in chapter 2, and there's some things we're going to look at in chapter 1, so I want you to turn back two pages to 1-1. We're going to spend most of our time in two, but I want you to go back a couple of pages because there's a couple of things there. And One thing we see in chapter 1 is the reality, his his second share reality. So, look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. I'd like you to circle that word, Susa. And then the last six words of chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king, and I'd like you to circle that word, cupbearer, because this is his second chair reality. You know, as you know from the Jewish history, we've discussed Nehemiah was born, raised in exile in a different country in, the, in, the, um, in the, the empire of Persia, right? Judah and Jerusalem had been invaded by Babylon. The city had been utterly destroyed, um, just torn down. Most of the citizens slaughtered, and some of the elites of the society were taken back to Babylon to help fill up the government there and help them rule and lead in Babylon. And then 34 years after that happened, Persia, the Persian Empire, defeated the Babylonian Empire and they took all of those Jewish exiles who were in Babylon, they took them down to Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. And so it is very likely that Nehemiah was born and raised in Susa. And what I want you to realize when it says that he's in Susa is part of what he's saying is, is he who was growing up as a believer in and a follower of Yahweh, the true and living God, the great I Am, he was living in a culture where nobody... Other than the Jewish people, believed in Yahweh and followed him. So he was he was in a culture that was radically against what he believed. And not only that, his first chair, his boss, was an unbeliever, did not believe in Yahweh. So I want to talk for a minute about Artaxerxes. Um, he was Nehemiah was the second chair to Artaxerxes, who was the king of that empire. He was over that whole thing. And I want you to know this guy was a tyrant king. He was a dictator. Robert Greenleaf's book, Servant Leadership, had not been written at this time. That's the kind of person he was dealing with. This guy had absolute power, and we know from that famous saying that absolute power, what does it do? It corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Artaxerxes had been in power for 20 years before chapter 1. He would be in power for 20 more years after the events of chapter 1 and 2. Here is a relief archaeologists discovered of Artaxerxes after capturing the rebelling king of Egypt, had him taken back to Susa where he personally and publicly executed him. Okay. That's the guy that Nehemiah was working for. How would you like to work for that guy? And not just working for that guy, but be his cupbearer. And do you remember in those days when kings had absolute power, the only way to get rid of a king, they didn't have elections every four years, right? The only way to get rid of him was to assassinate him. And the main way that people would do that back then, because it was really hard to get to them, is you would poison their drink or their food, and so the need for the cupbearer who would taste it or drink it ahead of time to make sure that um, everything the king ate and drank wouldn't kill him. So Nehemiah, in his position as second chair, was actually the canary in the mine, right? If he dies after eating something, the king knows something's up, right? How would you like that job? And then finally, I want you to remember that he works for the guy who had made a decree about 10 years earlier that nobody could rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nobody. And it was a a decree of the Medes and Persians, which meant it was unrevocable that nobody could change it. And then suddenly in chapter 1, God puts on Nehemiah's heart to go back and rebuild the walls. So how would you like to sit in his second chair? How would you like to sit in that second chair? Talk about a tough second chair. I don't think any of us has a more difficult second chair position than Nehemiah had, and I think probably most of us, our second chair, if we're in it or if we've been in one, was a cakewalk compared to him. So this morning, I want to share eight things that I learned from chapters one and two about living well as a second chair. And the first one is this. The first thing a second chair must do is they, they really need to put first things first by walking closely with God. And that's really the theme of chapter 1. We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at it, but if you remember, our first sermon was in chapter 1. And what we see in chapter 1 is he did put first things first. He walked closely with God. He was a man of prayer. Day and night praying, we saw that. He's a man of the Word, how much the Word is embedded in his prayer. He was a man committed to the fame of God. That's included in his prayer. And as we went through the book, did you not see how much Nehemiah's heart beat for his Lord? He walked with God. That was the first thing true about him. And if I'm going to be a second chair, that has to be true of me, right? That fruit of the Spirit that helps in self-leadership, it really helps in all forms of leadership, especially in second chair leadership. And if I want to have the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus says in John 15:5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you will abide in me and I abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. But without me, you can do Nothing. So it's so essential that I'm walking with Him regularly. I'm in the Word with Him regularly. I'm communing with Him through the Word and prayer. I'm worshiping. I'm being living obediently. In the words of Matthew 6.33, I am seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the first thing that has to happen. So as a second chair, keep your soul grounded in God and keep your identity rooted in Him, not in that position or the lack of position you have, but keep your identity rooted in Him. Second thing I learned that a second chair must do is they must trust God above all else. And I think the fact that Nehemiah leans so heavily into prayer, chapter one, but even here when he prays before he talks and responds, shows that he did that, I think, because he trusted God implicitly, deeply. He trusted God very much. He knew that changing Artaxerxes' heart and his mind on this issue was humanly impossible, but he also knew that it was God possible. And because of that, he was willing to leverage that trust in God into prayer. Um, Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Um, Actually, it's verse 11. Sorry, down in verse 11. You will see his prayer in the last sentence above, I was cupbearer to the king. Give your servant success. Would you circle that word success? Give your servant success today by granting him favor, circle favor, in the presence of his man. That's his prayer, and that's what he's putting his trust in. He's like, God, I need you to give me success. In other words, I need you to give me an opportunity to talk to him about what you put in my heart, and I need your favor, that he'll listen to me, that he'll respond positively. And when that opportunity came in chapter 2, verse 5, so flip back over to chapter chapter 2, not foo, chapter 2, verse 5. It says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, circle that one there, if he has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. And then verse 6, the very end of verse 6, it says, it pleased the king to send me, circle pleased. And then down in verse 8, Nehemiah adds, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, The king granted my request. So God answered his prayer. He gave Nal the opportunity. He gave him the favor that he was asking for. Pretty cool, right? Pretty cool. And I want you to know, his deep trust in God to me is not surprising. Last time, we're going to be in chapter 1. Flip back two pages. Back to chapter 1. Look at the God to whom he prayed. Verse 5, the very beginning of the prayer. Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And then if you drop down to verse 10 kind of under the tin, by your great strength and your mighty hand. So he knew the God who he was talking to. That He was praying to Yahweh Tzabaoth, the great I Am, who is the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, that he was praying to El Shaddai, the Almighty God. That's who his trust was in and that's who he was leaning in to help um, to lead him. And because of all of that, his belief in who God was, he was able to trust him. And all that tells me that Nehemiah knew that God was the heavy and not him, and that's why prayer was so important to him. He knew he knew that God was the heavy, and so like Nehemiah, I have to trust in God as a second chair, right? Proverbs three five and six. I need to trust in the Lord with all of my heart to not lean on my own understanding. That as I live in that position, that I acknowledge Him in all of my ways, knowing that He will direct my path if I live that way. So I trust in Him. I trust in His character. I trust in his names and what that means about him, and I trust that God is my heavy, that he's my heavy. And to me, as I thought about this, flowing directly out of that trust is the third thing, which is a second chair must be patient. Most scholars believe that Nehemiah had been in this position for years when we meet him in chapter 1, verse 1. And if you remember the prayer that he asked at the end of chapter 1, for God to give him favor and opportunity that he asked God to give him. Do you remember how many months it was that he had to wait before that reality happened? Who remembers from back then? Four months, right? Four months that he had to wait. Trusting God through and with that second chair relationship. Trusting that God would act through that. And I want to tell you, this is especially hard if you're a person with first chair wiring in a second chair. And Nehemiah was that, right? We learned last week he's a lion. This guy had bold, courageous leadership. Um, he had a first chair's heart and first chair's gifting, first chair gifting, but he's in a second chair. I mean, he's, as we read the book, he's obviously a skilled leader. He knew that. I think Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes knew that because um, you can't hide those things. But I think Nehemiah knew and trusted that it was God who was the one that had him in the second chair. God was the one who had put him there. And so he had to trust God. And to be patient with that, with what God was doing. And I have to do the same, right? So I just challenge you to hang in there. Trust God with that second chair role. He knows what He is doing with your life. God has put you there because He actually wants to have impact on the first chair through you. But He's also put you there in that second chair position because through that, He wants to form you into the image of His Son. And sometimes you're formed better in a second chair position than a first chair position. Not always. And he also may have you there for the amount of time he has you there because he's preparing you for future first chair leadership. I don't know that. He does. And the best place to be formed for first chair leadership is in second chair. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it, but you can't lead until you learn to follow. So you have to be patient with that second chair role. Fourth thing I learned a second chair must do from Nehemiah is you've got to build a genuinely trusting relationship with the first chair. Um, I want to tell you something I've kept close to the vest about Artaxerxes. For four months I've held on to this and haven't told you. Something really important. His father, Xerxes, was assassinated. And it was an inside job. It was somebody very close to him who killed him. It was the actual, the lead guard of his personal bodyguard who assassinated his dad. And so I want you to know, Artaxerxes trusted no one. He trusted no one. But it's clear in the text that he implicitly trusted Nehemiah, implicitly trusted him. One, it was part of the position. The king had to trust him, right? The king had to. Because every time Artaxerxes took a sip of wine or took a bite, he was betting his life on Nehemiah's trustworthiness, right? That Nehemiah wasn't part of, part of poisoning in some way. But I think it's really clear as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah, and especially as we look at chapter 2, that his trust in Nehemiah went above and beyond that, um, You know, knowing Nehemiah, what he's like, you just gotta know he built trust in other ways because he was a man of integrity. We've seen that all through the book, right? He's a man of his word. He's consistent in all of his duties. Um, He's totally faithful to the king. If you look at, we're not gonna read through this, but in chapter two, verses seven to eight, when the king finally says to him, I'm gonna let you do this, he already has that prepared list of things that he needs on the trip. So he's a man of preparation. He's a man of detail. this is characteristic of his whole life, Artaxerxes has seen this. So I think he had built a very trusting relationship with Artaxerxes. And not just built trust, but I want to say I think he built a relationship with him, which is the key to trust, is you got to have a relationship. That you show people that you care about them, and I think Nehemiah had clearly done that. And so when the opportunity came, that relationship building, it really paid off in spades. And here's how I know it. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 with me in the month of nisan in the 20th year of king artaxerxes when wine was brought for him i took the wine and i gave it to the king i had not been sad in his presence before so the king asked me why does your face look so sad when you were not ill this can be nothing but sadness of heart and that verse ends with nehemiah saying i was very much afraid and he was afraid for good reason because they had a law in the persian empire you could not appear before the king with anything but a smiling face and he just violated that and you would be expelled from the court for good and possibly executed. That was the normal practice, but that's not what happens. What does does Artaxerxes do? Instead of throwing him out, he cares enough to notice his heart and to inquire about it, and what this shows me is there was a trusting relationship that was there, and those last That last sentence of verse 6, I think, is also profound. It reads, it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. Circle that word, pleased. It's really significant. It pleased the king to send him. I think the fact that he was pleased to give him that request showed him that he trusted him, that he respected him, and I think that there was a relational base in what was going on with them, Because being pleased to give something to somebody flows out of a genuine relationship. So Nehemiah clearly had the trust of the king. I think something that took him years and years and years to earn, but he had it. So what about me as a second chair? Um, I've got to work hard at building a trusting relationship, right? I've got to be consistent doing the small things I need to do to build the trust. Last week I talked about um, invocation, when you're maybe in a place where you don't ultimately feel like you should be, that, that you can work on those skills that scale to every job, humility, honesty, all of those things. I'm sure Nehemiah did all of that. And that just takes time and hard work. It doesn't come overnight. But he had proven trustworthy in all the small things. And, you know, our first chair should know that we genuinely care about them and that we care about what matters to them. So work hard at developing that trust. Fifth, second chair, first thing they must do is be respectful at all times. We saw this in week three in the way Nehemiah treated and specifically spoke to Artaxerxes. And just very briefly, it's the way he talks in chapter 2, especially verses 3, 4, and 7. So in in verse 3, he says, May the king live forever. In verse 5, if it pleases the king. In verse 5, if your servant has found favor in his sight. Verse 5, let let him send me. Verse 7, if it pleases the king. Twice in verse 7, may I, may I. So clearly in his engagement with the king, he was respectful with his words to him. And I would say that's a large part of the reason that Artaxerxes trusted him so much was because of the respect that he showed. And we too have to be respectful of our first chair. This can only flow out of a heart posture of respect for the position and a respect for the person. And I want you to know If you're looking at your first chair, I don't care who they are, through the eyes of God, you can and should respect them as a person because, one, they're created in the image of God. His image is stamped upon their heart. They should be treated with love and dignity, right? And also, Jesus died for that first chair. He spilled his blood for them. And so I treat them with respect and especially people in leadership because this is the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. I want to show you in the New Testament. The New Testament talks a lot about this. In 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, it says this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to, what's the next word? Every human authority, whether to the emperor, I'm going to come back to him in a minute, as the supreme authority or to governors, show proper respect to, to how many? Everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Respect and honor the emperor. And do you know what emperor he's talking about when he wrote First Peter? He's talking about the emperor who was totally evil, capricious, who um, who was just bloodthirsty. The emperor Nero. The God says that guy. Respect and honor him. In First Romans thirteen six, it tells us why, because authorities are God's servants. They're God's servants, and that's why Romans 13, 7 says, you give to people in authority, respect, and honor. I don't have time to, to explain this one in his cultural context, but Ephesians 6, 5 says, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. And one more thing here I want to say is I was looking at Scripture in the New Testament related to this. This stood out to me. I want you to know this respect of your first chair goes beyond your words to them goes beyond your words to them. Here's what Titus 3, 1-2 says. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceful and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. To slander no one. So as a respectful second chair, I'm respectful not only in my words to my first chair, I'm respectful in my words about my first chair. Right? We've all heard stories of people in a second chair position who, crit, who talk critically and bad about their first chair behind their back. And most of the time, that eventually comes out and the first chair learns. And I want you to know there is no quicker way to lose their trust than to be somebody who does not respect them and the way you speak behind them. All right, number six. The sixth thing a second chair must do is be wise with your words. And I want you to know, Nehemiah knew the king so well Because of that relationship, he was wise and discerning with his words. Not to manipulate him, because that's not the kind of guy he is. He just knew that if he spoke to the king, he needed to be wise in his use of the words. And this is going to go back to, I think, our third week. He was wise in what not to say, and he was wise in what to say to him. Look quickly, if you don't mind, at verse 3. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when... The city, circle that, I'm sure you'll remember this, the city, then where my ancestors are buried, underline that phrase, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then if you go down to verse 5, where he says, I answered, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city, circle the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. And do you remember when I shared that day a couple of things? Artaxerxes' history with Jerusalem was not good. And Nehemiah knew him intimately and well enough to know, I'm not going to say Jerusalem, I'm just going to say the city. Okay, wise use of words. So he knew what not to say, and he knew what to say. He talked about, reference where my ancestors are buried twice. And if you remember in, there, in that Middle Eastern culture, your ancestors and where they buried was huge, but especially to the Persians, and especially the Persian kings. Remember, they obsessed about their burial. This is the tomb of three Persian kings. that's still down in Iran today. The middle tomb is the one that belongs to Artaxerxes. What I didn't show you last time I showed this picture to you three months ago is that's the relief of Artaxerxes that's actually up there by his particular tomb. Okay? That's how much this thing of being where your ancestors buried mattered to them, and he knew that. So he's not speaking manipulative to him. He just knows his heart and his heart language, and he's trying to speak to him in that kind of way. And that's what we have to do as a second chair. I've got to be intentional in the way I speak to my first chair. Um, It's got to be the same with me. And to do that, you've got to know them, right? You've got to know them. You've got to know their likes and their dislikes. You've got to know what they value and their core values. You've got to know, to a sense, maybe some of the pains or things in their own life. And the only way to do that is to get to know them deeply. And that's why, do you remember a couple months ago, I said, I recommended, I asked everybody somebody on your list, that sounds really whacked, I know, list, like a project, somebody, let me put it this way, somebody, a place God has put me and three or four crucial people, I feel like God gave me to influence them and to bless them and to bring shalom to them and be restored, restorer, right, that I said, take one of those people and say, I would love to have coffee with you next week, I would love to hear your story. So think about doing that with your first chair, you'll probably learn a lot about them. Seventh thing a first chair must do is you must truly serve your first chair. Truly serve your first chair. Look at how Nehemiah saw himself in relation to the king. Verse 5. And I answer the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant, would you circle that word servant, has found favor in his sight. And I don't think Nehemiah is just meaning this as a position. Again, knowing his whole leadership all through the book is a servant leadership, Right? So he saw himself as a servant. That's how he saw himself. Even in chapter 1, five times he calls himself a servant of God, so he understood where he stood in the universe. Okay, um, And here's how I know it's more than that. Look at verse 3. The first thing he said to the king about his burden and his desire is this. I said to the king, "'May the king live forever.'" And again, I don't think those words are just purely polite words that you say to the king art Artaxerxes. I think that Nehemiah was expressing his heart as a servant. I think he was being crystal clear. I'm not interested in your position. I'm not interested in usurping you off the throne, stealing your authority. I'm not trying to take over what you're doing. So may you live forever in your chair. That's great. But here's what I would like to ask for. He left no room for misinterpretation. He spoke in ways that were very non-threatening, Xerxes, and that were not self-promoting. And I think we have to be the same, right? We have to be servant-hearted when we're living a second chair, Taking seriously the words of Jesus in Matthew 20, 20 26, where he said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. So I take that posture of servanthood. And I desire to invest in my, church, my first chair. I invest to, to not just honor them, but I want to seek their best interests. And then to me, the overflow of that servant posture leads me to that eighth and final thing a second chair must do, which is serve your first chair sacrificially. We know Nehemiah did that simply by virtue of his position. It was built into his role as a cupbearer to the king, right? That he was willing to sacrifice himself to the king. For years, every day, he literally laid his life down for his king because he never knew what was in the food that he was eating or the wine that he was drinking, right? So you have to be somebody sacrificial to do that. And the same is true for me as a second chair. So, you know, the question is, does my first chair know that I care about them and that I approach them as a servant? But not only that, I am willing to sacrifice for them. I'm willing to take my agenda And the things I'm wanting, maybe, not that I don't want to share them because I have to influence up, but I'm willing to lay those aside for the priorities, the things they have, and how the direction they see things going, right? So it's that question, am I willing to sacrifice for them and protect them? Because that's what Nehemiah did with Artaxerxes. I love, I've said this so much, I love Nehemiah. He embodied not just to me what it means to be a leader, an influencer in the first chair. He shows me what it's like to live in the second chair. Um, and I want you to know, we don't know what happened to Artaxerxes, but Artaxerxes knew he worshipped Yahweh. Can you imagine the spiritual influence he had on him? And wherever you are in a second chair, can you imagine the spiritual influence that you might have on your first chair if you live well in that role, if you live and serve in the right kind of ways? I, as I've thought about this whole second chair, um, I want you to know that being a second chair, it is actually a gift from God. People don't always see it that way, but it's a gift. And it's not just a gift, it's a stewardship. That you're not there by accident, you're there by God's design and by His choice. Just like Nehemiah was in his second chair by God's design and choice. Esther 4.14, Um those famous words who knows but that you are not in this royal position for such a time as this so i have to trust that god has me in that second chair because he has things he wants to do through me intentionally placed there um, that i'm there for the reason and i'm just trying in this i'm trying wrapping this up i just want you to know it's a significant role it is a critical role The probably more than most people is a second chair. You can have major influence. You can have major influence on your first chair. So steward that well. Hone those second chair skills. The small things that scale. Work hard. Be honest. Sacrifice. Serve. Um, Not just for their sake. But work on honing those skills because a lot of those skills translate to the first chair. And leading well from the first chair. So steward that position well. um, And do so Again, knowing that you can have major impact on that person, that you actually can. A lot of times it's hard to see as a second chair. But if you look back after time, you can be like, I actually did make an impact, and some of the fruit I bore got bore through that first chair because of things that I shared with them. So you can have major impact. So I just really challenge you to to lean into that, to lead up. Don't be afraid to lead up. But when you do so, do so walking with God, trusting mightily in him leading up with patience and by building a relationship with your first chair and you do that by being respectful being wise with your words being a servant to them and living sacrificially towards them as your we don't have patron saints here but as your patron saint so to speak take john the baptist the greatest second chair of all time who served the greatest first chair of all time, Jesus, the Messiah, who we celebrated his birth. The man whose whole life was to point people and prepare them for Messiah, Jesus, and who said at one point, I must decrease so that he can increase. So, agape love your first chair. Okay, Love them, care about them, their burdens and passions, submit to them, protect them, and make them as effective as possible. Make them as effective as possible because you can multiply their impact in a way that other people can't and bear fruit through them. So enable them, assist them, add value, give them your best. Trying to leverage positive influence on the primary leader above you for their good, for the good of all, and for the glory of God. Forgot to tell first service this. That's probably why I got behind on my PowerPoint. There's a really good article I encountered. Actually, this is my summary of an interview. How to lead when you're not in charge. If you're interested in it, you can hold up your phone right now and do the QR code, and it will take you to a place on the website, and you can read that later. But if if you find yourself in the second chair, that's excellent stuff. Okay, I can't just end there. Um, You knew it was coming, right? There had to be a little bit more. Because there are first chairs that are sitting in here. And I've got to speak to those who are the big honchos, the top dogs. I can't leave the first chairs. I can't leave us off the hook. Trust me, I've thought about this a lot for quite a long time, this week in particular. I've got a few questions for the first chairs. First question is this. Do you care about your second chair? Do you know them and their passions and their burdens and the things that are on their heart? Because Artaxerxes did with Nehemiah. And I can too. Are you humble enough to be influenced by your second chair? That you're willing to really hear the thoughts that they have, the ways they're trying to influence up, that they figure in your decision-making. Sometimes you change a decision because you feel like the information or the things they've given you is better, right? So can you do that? Remember, this guy, our Xerxes, led a world empire back then, and he was willing to change a law of the Medes and Persians that was irrevocable. He was willing to change it for Nehemiah. That's a lot of humility. Three, are you threatened by your second chair? I just want to start with, stop with that. Are you threatened by your second chair first? Secondly, are you threatened by their success when they have it, when their ideas prove right, or when they have an idea of something to do, you kind of let them try it? It's to raving success. Can you lean into that and let them be in the spotlight? Fourth question, are you willing to equip your second chair to be a first chair if it's clear that God has wired them that way? Remember, as a first chair, my priority ought to be, besides leading the thing God's called me to lead, is to encourage, equip, and develop those who are under me in second and third chairs, right? That's part of what I'm called to do. And I do that knowing that most of my important fruit is going to grow on other people's trees. Most of my important fruits going to grow on other people's trees. And that's what Artaxerxes was willing to do with Nehemiah, right? He gave him everything he needed to succeed, including a letter that made him governor of Judah, everything he needed to succeed. Five, are you able to release your second chair and bless them when it's time? I want you to know when Artaxerxes let go of Nehemiah, he was letting go of probably his most trusted servant and probably most skilled but he let him go. And let I me mean, closely relay that question. Six, do you long for your ceiling to be your second chair's floor? Are you willing to invest in them so that they can raise perhaps to greater heights than you if God calls them to that, okay? Are you, are you really willing to invest in them the things that they could actually outpace you? And if not, why not? That's what I see in Art of Verse 9 of chapter 2, he not only gave him the things he asked for, he gave him things he didn't ask for because he wanted to invest in him for his first chair position. And then as I've thought about this just really quickly, I just thought, what are are important steward first chair characteristics, qualities? One, it requires a steward's heart that I don't see myself as the owner of the company or the owner of those people, right? That I see myself as a steward. It requires a humble heart, which allows me to let them be elevated in the spotlight if something were to happen, that that's where it needs to be. It allows me to invest. It requires a multiplication mindset. Again, a very deep conviction that my greatest fruit is going to grow on other people's trees, so I'm willing to pour myself into multiplying people and not just doing my thing, okay? It also requires an abundance mentality over against a scarcity mentality, because when you have a scarcity mentality, it leads to a lot of control. You want to keep things tight, right? If you have an abundance mentality and you trust that God's a God of abundance, it's easier to do this, to lead as a first chair. And I think perhaps above all, it requires a heart that trusts supremely in God, knowing that God has given me some second chairs and I'm to steward that really well and to develop them perhaps be a first chair and who knows, maybe even up into my first chair at some point. So I have to trust God with that. And in light of those questions and those qualities, I think the things we would all agree that undermine my ability to be a good first chair would be pride, fear, and control. And again, control grows out of fear. When I'm afraid, I want to rein things in and bring control. So it, those things, all of those things will keep me from investing in my chair, second chair, from blessing them. It'll keep me from investing in them, from multiplying, from releasing them, giving up control. So those things are essential. So, as always, big question, what is the most important thing you learn today? So we're looking at Nehemiah as a second chair. Most important thing you learn? I mean, we'd be at the last one if you've done all of them. A, a word, a phrase, just something. What's the most important thing I learned today from the Word of God? More importantly, what's God speaking to my heart today? How did God grab me, tap me on the shoulder, nudge me? A word, a phrase, something. Then how am I going to put that my hand to that? What do I need to do to live out the God, thing God was speaking to me? So would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for all of us. Father, you've made us all leaders in the sense that you've given all of us influence in certain spaces with certain people. And Lord, I I have a feeling a lot of us here are in a second chair of some kind. I pray that you would help us to walk closely with you so that the traits that we see in Nehemiah, those things could flow out of us and that we could serve and love our first chair well. Lord, I know there are first chairs in here. I see some of them. I know you know them, and I pray that they would also lead well down, that you would help build in them the qualities that they need, that they would walk with you so that your fruit, the fruit of your spirit would flow through them. Lord, I just pray all this that we would have impact wherever we live, work, study, and play, the people you have put around us. We want to influence, help us to do it and to do it well. And we pray in the name of Jesus, the supreme servant, leader who gave his life. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, 12th. You're sent to live as a restorer.